this week on the Back Table Podcast. If the patient comes in and they're and they and they're a cochlear implant candidate, but they have poor cognitive function, what we're seeing is that we improve. We're doing a good job of improving those patients' audibility, right? So their their CNC and their hearing in quiet is getting better, but their hearing in noise is it struggles. So cognitive testing has become an integral part of our CI process. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Today, our guest host is Dr. Walter Coots, a professor in neurotology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School here in Dallas, Texas. Welcome to the Backtable ENT. Today, we have Jed Grissel, who's a private practice otolaryngologist from Wichita Falls, Texas. I've known Jed for, I guess, about 15 years now or more. And, uh, you know, I consider him a friend and a colleague and really enjoy uh, phone calls discussing patients. Good morning, Walter. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. So you've done some incredible work with cognitive dysfunction and hearing loss, which is a very hot topic right now in otology. Tell me about what programs you have going on in, in your clinic up in Wichita Falls. Well, th- thanks, Walter. You know, probably just as a, a brief introduction of who I am and where I am. We're, I, I'm a private practice otolaryngologist, ENT, in, in Wichita Falls, Texas, which is a town of about a little over 100,000. We're about two hours from Dallas. And, um, you know, in my, in my practice, we are six physicians, five audiologists. Um, we're actually part of a larger group that, uh, that, that consists of 20 doctors throughout Texas, but we're, we're in Wichita Falls and I really enjoy it. I, I enjoy the opportunity to take care of the patients in our community. Um, I enjoy the, the opportunity we have to kind of control the setting that we, that we practice in. And I, I think that, you know, one of the things that's interesting is I've been here, I've been in Wichita Falls for 10 years. And one of the things that's interesting is just understanding the, the stresses and the challenges that face private practice ENT. And I think we're going to get into the cognitive testing here in a bit and talk about how, how that's differentiating our practice. But I think it's important also to just to think about, you know, what's going on in private practice ENT as we think and about having a successful, you know, practice and business. And, and what, you know, every, every year that we go on in our practice, we see that the challenges of running a practice and let's face it, it's a business of running a small business, th- those challenges get more complex. You know, the challenges of, of getting paid and the complexity of managing payer contracts and the, the complexity of IT, uh, you know, EHR complexity and all those things that we, we have to manage in addition to seeing patients. And one of the things that really helps uh, our practice do well is, is sort of these ancillary, robust, healthy ancillary streams, whether it be allergy or in-office procedures or, or audiology. And so audiology is a very important part of our practice. And that's where I think the cognitive testing has really been helpful. Great. Yeah, you know, it's very different than my practice. I'm an academic otolaryngologist at UT Southwestern. And so I take for granted a lot of these issues that are very you know, real issues out in the private practice world. So, you know, related to that, what are some of the challenges the ENT clinics are having as it relates to hearing care? Yeah, I, I think, th- thanks for that question, Walt. You know, in my opinion, ENT and audiology, ENT slash audiology clinics, like the practice that we have where we have otolaryngologists and, and audiology in the same practice. To me, we are and should be the pinnacle of healthcare delivery in our communities, right? We, we have the diagnostic and treatment options that really surpass any other 
delivery channel. We do, you know, traditional diagnostic testing and we do amplification and we do conductive devices and we do cochlear implants. And, and so we should really be that sort of top. And there are some good and bad things that are happening in the hearing healthcare world, you know, on the, on the, on the positive side, I think there's a lot of innovation and uh, technology that's coming to really help patients and improve access to care. On the, on the other side, it's it, the, the market is getting more crowded, right? And the, 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 the ability to maintain a healthy hearing clinic is more challenging and competitive. And so I think some of the challenges that we're seeing on that side is direct to consumer options for patients, you know, and um, where they can, they, they can call and get a hearing aid online and, and, uh, and, and have it programmed remotely. There are over the counter uh, hearing aid options that are coming. I think we'll, we should talk about a little bit. And so those things are all, you know, sort of changes hard for people. And so I think people see that as a potentially a threat, but it's just change. And it's, I think there's some opportunities in there as well. Yeah. I mean, it's complex with the hearing rehabilitation options. I mean, even speaking to the patient on a bone conduction device, I mean, it's a, it's a long conversation. There's so many options out there and then you throw in hearing aids, cross hearing aids, by cross hearing aids, maybe cochlear implant candidacy. It can be very complex and time consuming. You know, it's interesting The over-the-counter hearing aids recently were approved by the FDA for patients with mild to moderate hearing loss. It seems to me that may create some challenges um, with, you know, keeping your clinic healthy with hearing aid cells and, and really take care of patients because now maybe the patients could just go to a brick and mortar store unrelated to your clinic. How do you see over-the-counter hearing aids affecting your practice? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big topic that everyone's talking about. I mean, I think we should take a step back for a minute and just say, Okay, there, there's 50 million Americans who need treatment for hearing loss. And, and by 2040, that'll be like, you know, 80 million Americans. So this is, this is a blossoming, growing market. And it's a, it's, there are a lot of people currently who do not participate in that market. Like only about 20% of the people that need treatment for hearing loss are actually engaged. And so I, I think it's an interesting analogy would be to look at the vision care or optometry market. For years and years and years, you had to have a prescription to get glasses. And then, and then reader glasses came on where the, you know, these sort of pre pre-prescribed glasses you could, without a, without a doctor of optometry, you could go to Walmart and get some glasses. And what did that do to the vision care market, right? It did it. The optometrist didn't go out of business because reader glasses came on. What it did is it widened the funnel and suddenly, you know, millions of more Americans had access to low cost vision that they could go to Walmart. And I think what I, what we hope of course, is that that's the case that the, all, you know, many of these patients who struggle, but they're not ready to make that first step to treating their hearing loss, that now there's this sort of gateway opportunity for them. So w what we hope of course, is that we grow that in, entire market and the, and the challenge for us as otolaryngologists in our, in our hearing clinics is of course, to figure out how do we position ourselves so that they come to us, you know, so that we have this portfolio of of treatment options for them and that they see us as, as the true experts and that they can access, whether it be OTC aid or a programmable device or an implantable device, we are, we are that resource for them. Yeah. I mean, I think the cost of hearing devices really prevents many patients from even choosing them. I mean, a pair of hearing aids can be four, six, seven thousand dollars or more. And so I think for patients with mild to moderate hearing loss and overcounted hearing aid will, you know, decrease that, that financial barrier to use hearing aids. So how do you, how do you think as an otolaryngology clinic, we can, you know, improve 
care over maybe if a patient decides to buy hearing aids online or, you know, they go to some, some store that just sells hearing aids really without audiology or laryngology, what sort of things, you know, can we differentiate ourselves as otolaryngologists and audiologists? I think that it's a great question. I think that, um, on the one hand, if you think about where we pos- want to position ourselves as being that premier, uh, delivery channel, I think that if a patient can go to Costco and they can get the same experience that they can get in our clinic, then why would they, you know, why, why would they come? I, I think that the way that we do this is that we redefine the experience for our patients so that it's something that they can only get with us. And, and so that's, that's a good segue to kind of talk about where cognitive testing, I think comes in because, you know, it's, it's interesting. The audiogram was developed around world war two, right? And, and so the audiogram in itself is a diagnostic test to help us understand how the cochlea detects sound with, with pure tones. And then it also has a little bit of, you know, speech, speech understanding and quiet, but that test shines only a partial light with, with, the, with the knowledge that we've had probably for the last 25 years about the, the connection between hearing and cognitive function, you know, a, an audiogram only show, sh- shines partial light on a patient's communication abilities or listening abilities. And so I think that when we have these patients that come in and we're using the audiogram as the end all be all diagnostic test to determine whether they need a hearing test and to, and, and to follow them. Um, we're, we're, we're only getting a partial picture. And then when patients struggle and they're frustrated with this device that they just spent, you know, $4,000 on, we're sort of at a loss for being able to understand those, those challenges. So cognitive testing in our practice is becoming such an important differentiator in our community, but also tool to help us better counsel patients and treat their, treat their hearing loss. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. At UT Southwestern, we're not necessarily screening all patients for cognitive dysfunction, but we do have a few studies going on right, right now, led by Jacob Hunter, one of my colleagues and an otologist. So what sort of, you know, one, I guess one of the concerns with adding cognitive testing is, of course, that's time. And, you know, that someone's going to have to administer that test. Um, how do you approach that in your clinic, you know, justify that extra time with a patient? You know, I'm sure you have a very busy practice. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you, how are you able to to manage that and make it worthwhile for you and the patient. Yeah, I think that anytime we talk about doing something different or bringing in a new service line, there's so many logistics. And historically, you know, cognitive testing, I think has been relegated to the research arena because it's hard. You know, you have to have a trained administrator of the test. You have to, it's, a, you know, the, the, the traditional tests have been paper pencil. So, it, you know, previous tests have been like the, you know, mini mental status exam and MOCA. Um, and some of these different tests that have, that are helpful, but the problem with them is that they, th- there's some challenges with them They're, they, they take, they take time that you have to have a trained administrator. And also if the patient is old and they don't have good dexterity or their vision is poor, that affects their outcome. And so now you're testing the patient's vision and dexterity and not their cognitive uh, abilities. And so the game changer for us to implement this in our practice has been the ability to have an automated self-administered version of a cognitive test. And that's what we've been using for the last year. And so this is a test that sits like a little kiosk in in the office. It takes about five minutes for the patient to do. It's self-administered. So a technician, not a, not a trained, you know, audiologist or even an audiology tech. In fact, our receptionist can, before they see the audiologist can sit them in, in, in the, sit them in a, in the location where we have it and get the patient started. And then the patient does everything else. 
And this test has been, you know, kind of rigorously studied in terms of its repeatability and how valid the test is from patient to patient and from test to test. And so you kind of get rid of some of those distractions that would make the test invalid. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds like a, uh, an efficient way to do that and, and come over some, of, you know, get over some of those barriers. So let's say that a patient does have some cognitive dysfunction on the test. You know, do you counsel them, you know, about how they may do with hearing aids or when would you send them to a neurologist or for further testing? Yeah. And, and that's a, that's kind of a, an interesting challenge because, you know, we are not, you know, it's not in our scope of practice either within ENT or, or audiology to be, to be diagnosing dementia. You know, I think this is a really important thing that, and some of the people that are skeptical with doing cognitive testing in the office, you know, they're like, well, well, what if we, if we find a patient that has a deficit, what do we do then? And, and, and it's very nerve wracking for the audiologist. And so what we're finding is that there's a small percentage of patients th that have normal cognitive function and they're, and they have hearing loss. Okay. And so those patients, obviously we treat their hearing loss and that's fine. And then there, and then there's a, a group of patients who most of our patients, because we only do this cognitive screening on patients who are considering an intervention. So most of the patients, they have some level of hearing loss and they have some level of cognitive decline. You know, they're performing that well. That's, that's most of our patients. And so the first thing that we do is we, we know that hearing loss and cognition are related through a lot of different studies. And so we, so we treat that, we treat their hearing loss. And then, it, and then post-intervention and our definition of post-intervention is 60 days for a hearing, hearing aid and six months for a cochlear implant. So post-intervention, we do another assessment. If the patient's cognition is improved, then great. That's, that's the patient's excited. They, we've reduced their cognitive load. They can perform mental tasks on a daily basis better and, and everyone's happy. If that, if they struggle, then we, um, we have a list of health problems that can present as cognitive as cognitive impairment and we it's like a form letter and we send that to their primary care physician and that and that form letter it's got you know thyroid dysfunction dis depression interestingly can present as mild cognitive impairment um you know there's a there's a whole list of these but and also polypharmacy it, uh, you know if you, if you look at the list of medications that can cause cognitive impairment i mean it's it's like you know it's it's a lot we'll just say so we took, look, took made, created a list of the most common of these. And if the very, if, the, if at the very minimum, we help the patient go to their primary doc and clean up their meds so that they don't have quite this problem with polypharmacy, then I think we've done good for this patient, you know? Yeah. That's just the polypharmacy is amazing. You know, the, the patient probably sees different specialists, primary care, and all of a sudden they're on 15 medications that cause cognitive decline, but they also cause other things. We see dizziness, tenderness, yeah. and that's a great point to bring up just in general. You brought up cognitive load. Tell me your thoughts on cognitive, you know, the challenges with cognitive load in patients with hearing loss. Yeah. There's a lot of research, you know, right now trying to understand, we know that patients with, with hearing loss have higher risk of, you know, dementia and they have higher risk of depression and falls and these different things, but, but understanding how those are related is really important. And so there's these different theories, you know, these different mechanisms. And one of those me uh, that relate how, how ex explicitly does someone who has untreated hearing loss lead to dementia? And so one of those is this idea of cognitive load. And I, I think that the way that I explained this to my patients is that, you know, our brain is like a computer and there's only so much, you know, processing power, like, like your RAM, there's only so many things that your brain can do at any given time. And so 
being able to process a degraded sound signal. If you've got hearing loss and there's this degraded sound signal coming to your brain, that requires more energy by your brain. And we, it, it uses more cognitive resources than it does somebody who's got normal hearing. And so cognitive load is this idea that you have to have the cognitive skills and mental abilities to go about your day and do your activities, but then you also are using some of those resources to process this degraded sound signal. And of course, we've all seen these patients that, you know, by the end of the day, they're exhausted. You know, they have this cognitive the listening fatigue and they're exhausted. And so cognitive load is this idea that you're stressing the system and over days and weeks and months and years, that cognitive load is just taxing the resources of the, of the brain. And so and we, we've seen this, I mean, we had a patient recently who scored below 50%. So just how this test works, the, the cognitive test works is that it measures three different domains of cognition, working memory, executive function, and visual spatial processing. And we, we had a, a cochlear implant patient that was actually quite, quite young, you know, for a cochlear implant patient, um, I think in her fifties and, and she was always so exhausted at the end of the day and tired. And we, we treated her with a cochlear implant and her preoperative scores were below 50% on every one of those domains. And so then at, at six months, we, we repeated the test and, um, the patient was doing well and she was excited that she could hear and participate in her life. But having that number to show her that, look, now your executive function and your working memory and your visual spatial process, they were all in the normal range, which is over 75%. Now there's a lot of skeptics who will say, well, you know, your, your cognition can change from day to day. If you come in and you're tired and you know, you've, you, you didn't sleep well, your cognition can be poor, but over time, if we measure this a lot on every patient, we start to see these trends and it gives us a number that we can show the patient. We say, you know, this is part of the reason why you feel better because your brain is not having to work as harder than it should be to perform the tasks that you do during your day. And so it, it really kind of reinforces for the patient with real data that they're, that they're on the right track. Yeah. And this, I guess it's pretty similar to what the achieve trials looking at, you know, that looking at aging and cognitive health and elderly, and hopefully those results are going to be in, do you know when they're planning on publishing that? I think that in, if I remember right, I think that in 2023, we should get some. Yeah. And, and so just for the listeners to understand, so Franklin and his group at Hopkins are doing this trial. It's it, it called the achieve trial because in, in the literature, you know, there are, there are many retrospective studies that are showing that, you know, everyone knows that there's co this connection between hearing loss and cognition. But the big question is, is how powerful is an in intervention in altering that trajectory of dementia development? Because, you know, it's, it's not, of course, we all know it's not going to be that every single patient that we treat with hearing loss, they're going to avoid developing dementia, right? We know that's not the case, but we also know, know that there is some impact. And so being able to put a number and understand. So this is, uh, is very important. And so this is a, a, a NH funded study. It's I think 800 and some odd patients multi-center and they're, they're half of them are being put in a study where they're undergo successful aging, like other healthy aging tech uh, strategies. And then, and then in the, and then in the research group, they're they're treating their hearing loss and then they measure over time how they develop de dementia. And so I, I, it's, so what we're doing in our clinic, you know, we, we, we try to avoid that discussion with patients of, you know, showing them their data, their, their cognitive performance and saying, okay, Mrs. Jones, now you're going to, you know, you, you're probably going to develop dementia because that's not a smart strategy. I mean, it, it scares patients, honestly. And, um, and, and we, we're still waiting on the data. We don't, we don't really know that. 
So that's where this cognitive load discussion has become very helpful because we can show the patients how they're improving and then say, look, you know, what, whether, whatever happens in the future, we'll, we'll get to that. But what I can tell you is that on this day, compared to before we treated your hearing loss on this day, your brain has more ability to perform important tasks, you know? And so that it's, it's sort of a more proximate outcome that we can show patients of how they're doing. Does the word get around your community that you're doing the cognitive testing and, and you've had referrals coming from patients that have seen you? Or? you? You know, it's starting to, um, we're, we're, we haven't really been, um, aggressively, uh, discussing with this computer, with the community, cause we're trying to figure out the flow what it really means. So we're, we're still kind of looking at some things internally, but the neurologists certainly know. And so there, I think that's helpful because we, we probably are doing, you know, more than even, well, they, they do a more intense, uh, version of how they assess cognition, but, but, uh, but the neurologists are figuring out, and I have some colleagues who throughout the state who are doing this, uh, who have audiology only practices, and that's a, primary driver for them, you know, of, of how they get referrals is there's really setting themselves apart as sort of being this ear brain specialist, you know? So, so by doing this, do you, have you collaborated with some neurologists in your community that will see patients if there's a concern or, you know, I mean, if, if I were a patient and I did a cognitive test and it was showing some decline that I was concerned about, I'd probably say, what do I do next? You mentioned maybe the starting with the primary care, but do you have any neurology colleagues you work with directly? Yeah, there, there is one in town that is real, that does, you know, she's, that has sort of a Parkinson's dementia clinic and that knows about this and that we work with. The, the problem with, it's a little bit complex because remember what we're doing with the cognitive screen is, is we're, it's, it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like blood pressure. You know, I, I think of this oftentimes, you know, blood pressure is a biometric reading that gives us, it's like a surrogate indicator for your cardiovascular health. But, you know, if you, if you looked at, if a patient came into your office as an ENT and their blood pressure was high, you know, without any further investigation or studies, oftentimes we'd probably have them go to their primary doc first, right? Because 90% of those problems are going to be able to manage. And then the primary doc can address the low hanging fruit and get them managed and whatever. And then if there's this continued problem, they would send them on. It doesn't mean that doing blood pressure testing in our office is invalid just because we're not cardiovascular specialists. It's still a valid biometric reading that we get from patients. And so I see cognitive testing that same way. If, if every patient that didn't perform well on the cognitive test we sent to neurology, I think that they would be like, stop, please stop. Yeah, yeah no kidding. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so, so, uh, and, and 90% of these patients, you know, you, you, you clean up their meds or you address some issues or uh, that, and, uh, and, and, and it strengthens your bond with your primary care colleagues, you know? And then I think that if they, if they, uh, have a, a problem, then I think that going further is, is helpful because, you know, the neurologists are the real experts and they're going to be doing, you know, the, the full in-depth battery of tests that are required to diagnose dementia. So that's an interesting, it's an interesting nuance, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, neurology, you know, visit's going to take an hour, hour and a half if it's very thorough and there's just, there's just not enough neurology time to, to do that. So that makes a lot of sense to work with a primary care of colleagues. You know, well, one other thing I'd say about this is that, um, so the question is, is who do we screen, right? Because mm -hmm. it also is a time commitment for us when they come in. And so I think it's important just to kind of know kind of the pathway of what we do. So like most ENT clinics, when a patient comes in the office on the ENT side, and then they get sent for diagnostic, like a, like an audiogram hearing test, if the patient's scheduled 
Like we don't do the cognitive testing right then in the midst of my busy, you know, you know, I'm seeing 20 patients in a half day and then we start inserting this. I did do that for a little while and it's, and it was because I wanted to understand the test, but it's just kind of not very feasible. So what we do is when the patient comes in, that first we do that test. I mean, first we do their audiogram and we do a quick send. And I would be a huge proponent for the listeners of quick send. This is, this is a very qu- easy we do it in sound filled, not ear specific, and it and it it's just a hearing and noise test. Uh, it would be sort of like the equivalent of a very quick AZ, you know, AZ bio with background noise. It's but it's very quick, and the reason why it's helpful is that cognitive skills are um, needed to be able to perform well in noise. And so a patient, this happens to me all the time, where patients came in, they were complaining that they struggled in noise. We do an audiogram only. And they have very mild loss, or maybe they have a super threshold listening disorder, right? Like, you know, you know, like ADHD or some other super threshold listening disorder. And so they'll come in and they'll say that. And without that quick sin, I'm not addressing that patient's concern that they, they came because they couldn't hear a noise and they come to my office and I test them at quiet and they say, oh, you look pretty good. Right. And so the quick sin helps me address their, their concern. And also if they, it, it, it gives us a, a little tip off that there may be a cognitive problem here. And then when the patient needs to be scheduled for a hearing aid evaluation, they come in and before they see the audiologist, it's on a different day. When they go to see the audiologist, the technician that brings them back or the receptionist brings it back, does that test before they see the audiologist. And then the audiologist has that information and then they include that. So it's just, I think it's important to see that, you know, we've kind of tried to over the last year, try to work this out. So it's has a minimal impact on our flow and we don't test everyone. The other person that we don't test to get back to our discussion about the neurologist is if a patient already has dementia, the, the cognitive screen is really keyed at, uh, statistically to pick up mild cognitive impairment, which is good for us because it's kind of the early stages at a stage where we may be able to do something about it. So if I have an 80 year old that comes in and they clearly have been diagnosed with dementia, it's kind of a moot point and it's, a, it's an exercise in frustration for all of us to just do that test. So, so we don't, we don't test people that already have known dementia. Yeah. Kind of going on a little bit of a side note here. Let's say you do have a patient that has maybe loosely defined as a central processing disorder, or they're having a difficult time hearing and noise, but then you test them and their hearing is normal or very mild hearing loss. And you know, you don't think a hearing aid necessarily is going to be helpful. What do you do with those patients? Um, do you have them be with audiology for counseling and, and, and some rehabilitation, some, you know, some lifestyle things they can do, or how do you approach those patients? Well, you know, I'll tell you that it's, this is where the, the quicksand and the cog- cognitive tests have really added to our, our counseling abilities because there are, uh, so b- before we started doing all this, we would never have considered, you know, we would say, well, you know, go online and get a PSAP. That's, that was my strategy before, you know, we'd say go online and get it because maybe it'll help you. You know, if, if you're struggling, that's a low cost thing to do. And so we would do that. But now I've actually had some patients that we've at least let them try, right? Like we put it, we say, look, even though your thresholds, this partial test of audio audiogram shows that you're very mild and lost. These other tests are really showing that there's a deficit there. You know, your quicksand is poor and you're struggling noise. And these are patients that, um, you know, we'll, we'll let them try and a low gain here just to bump up their signal to noise ratio. It can be helpful and that's good for the patient. They're happy because they didn't leave disappointed. It's good for your business because you sold a hearing aid. 
you know, and, and everyone's, everyone's happier. So it, it, it's, but, but before I would have felt, you know, I just didn't have the tools to be able to counsel that patient. And one of my colleagues in, in Austin has musicians that will come in and they'll be struggling because they use their ears all day long and they're struggling and, and in that music scene down there. And these are patients that before we, that before this was being done would never really have been given options. And now they get low gain hearing aids or, you know, entry level device and they're happy, you know? So, yeah. and then, and then if that, if, if that doesn't work, then you have to start, we have to start thinking of other things that could be going on. Yeah. That's a good approach. It's, it's easy to see those patients and just, well, there's not a lot we can do for you. And then they're frustrated and you're really not helping anybody by doing that. So it's interesting. I wonder if over-the-counter hearing aids, you know, will be useful for some of these, these patients that have problem and noise, but their thresholds aren't too poor. That'll be interesting to see as those yeah. devices roll out. Definitely. So, you know, another thing that I see in my practice is a, a patient, maybe they already have dementia. Um, they're probably elderly and, you know, they're really struggling with hearing. They may even be a cochlear implant candidate and, you know, they're being taken care of by their family members or caregivers. And there's a lot, a lot of times a patient may not be as concerned about the hearing loss of the caregiver. I think yeah. there's really a caregiver burden from significant hearing loss. You know, the, the son or daughter or family member wants to take care of their, their loved one with dementia, but it's very challenging when you can't communicate well. Do you see some of that in your practice? And, and it seems like that sometimes by treating the patient, I think it really helps the, the caregiver and the family maybe as much or more than the patient in some ways. That's a great point, Walter. And I think you know, from a societal standpoint, I think about these weird things sometimes that if you, if you were born in the year 1900, you know, your life expectancy was like 40, right? So if you live to be, I mean, and we know that the incidence of, from a, from a population standpoint, the incidence of hearing loss really starts to tick up in our fifties. And so if you live to start developing hearing loss, you were like the, like the old person that like, you know, has managed to not get killed in a war or get an infection. And so now you're like the old person and you, it's rare, right? But now in, in my generation, in our generation, like half of us will live to be a hundred, you know? And so for the, it's weird because we're doing this like social experiment where we've taken millions and millions of Americans and given them decades of sensory deprivation. And then we're like, okay, well, let's see what happens now. And so while we're living longer and that's great, we now have to start wrapping our minds around of how do we live longer, better? You know, and so more and more of Americans will live in, in, into their late decades with multiple chronic illnesses. And those multiple chronic illnesses are expensive. They take a tax on our quality of life and, and hearing losses fits right into, in one of those, you know, and I think with dementia, I think it's the, the, I, I have to go back and look, but I think the statistic is something like 85% of the cost burden of dementia is borne by the families. And it's, it's born in the terms of paying for, you know, care facilities when patients lose their independence and it's borne by lost wages by having to take off to take care of family members and the emotional toll of dealing with family members. And so, so to me, this is a discussion that we have too. And what I've noticed is that when, when we bring up this ear brain connection with patients, when I do with my patients, you can see on the face of the patient and their families, the discussion change, right? Whereas before it was sort of like, okay, you have this here, this problem that nobody wants to go buy a device that nobody wants to pay money for. And now we're talking about our brain health and being able to stay independent longer and being able to release the or improve the burden on families. And so when we have that discussion, suddenly, you know, the, the families are like, how quickly can we schedule an appointment? You know, it just changes the discussion. 
especially for a treatment intervention that oftentimes is borne by the family and not, you know, insurance payment for hearing aids is variable. And so, you know, we have to really be, have a rational discussion with families. So to why this, this uh, intervention makes sense for you and, and that discussion makes sense to people. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the patient, you know, with more severe to profound hearing loss. Um, maybe they, they have early dementia. Um, and then the family comes in and, and they, you're, you're talking about, Hey, this, you, you know, your loved one or, or talk to the patient, you, you're probably a cochlear implant candidate at this point. And then there's some, there's some worry about general anesthesia and worsening dementia by undergoing general anesthesia. And then you kind of balance that with placing a cochlear implant. And we know that patients with dementia probably are not going to, they're not going to, um, have performance that someone, you know, without dementia is going to have with a cochlear implant. How do you discuss that with a family? That's always a, a tricky topic, I think. I think it is a really tricky topic. And, you know, like in, in the Lancet stu study, which was this big study that showed all of these different modifiable risk factors for dementia, it showed that hearing loss was this, uh, you know, c controlling for hearing loss was the modifiable risk factor was the most impact on dementia development. Now, the, the problem with that study was it, 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 did, it wasn't really good at cause, causal relationships and also that study was talking about treating hearing loss in midlife, 40s, 50s, 60s, not, not late life. So, I mean, we'll, we'll learn with the achieve trial stuff, but probably if somebody comes in with profound hearing loss and dementia, you know, you're going to help that patient with sound awareness and with communication ability, but whether you're going to reverse those is a challenge. But, but then the other topic comes in is when a patient's sitting there and they don't, they don't, they're not engaging their, their environment, how much of that is cognitive dysfunction and how much of that is they can't hear? you know, and teasing that apart mm -hmm. is, is, is difficult for patients. And so we're working on a study right now where we're just kind of a clinical evaluation of us and two other sites where we're trying to look at like, how do those things tease out? And one of, one of the things we've noticed is that what we're starting to learn is that if a patient has poor cognitive function preoperatively, well, let, let, let me take it the other way. If they, if, if the patient has good cognitive function preoperatively, we have high confidence that we're going to help you hear in quiet and we're going to help you hear in noise. And it just gives us like, you know, that, that patient is, but now we know it's like helping us preoperatively define those patients. And so we say, look, Mrs. Jones or whatever, your family member, we're going to help you. You're going to hear, you're, you're going to detect sound better, but we need to be prepared that you might need remote mics. You might need auditory training. We need to throw the kitchen sink at you because you're one of these patients that may have, you, you know, we may not have all of those skills. So then it just, it's not that we're not going to implant that patient, but it's a totally different preoperative counseling discussion. We definitely feel good about that patient. Anybody could implant that patient and they could, they probably aren't going to need a lot of oral rehab and they're going to do well. Right. So that's like, yay, we can all celebrate. If the patient comes in and they're, and they, and they're a cochlear implant candidate, but they have poor cognitive function. What we're seeing is that we improve, we're doing a good job of improving those patients' audibility, right? So their, their CNC and their hearing in quiet is getting better, but their hearing in noise is, it struggles. So cognitive testing ha has become an integral part of our CI process. Yeah. I mean, that's excellent. I think with cochlear implants and a lot of things we do, it is all about expectations. And if you don't set those expectations at, you know, the initial visit and before surgery, it's going to be very difficult to explain why Mrs. Jones isn't doing as well as the family or Mrs. Jones may have thought she's doing. So that's a great point. And, and then, you know, most of these patients that we're going to implant, they're going to have severe to profound loss. And in, in general, we're not taking away a lot of function. So, and, and this is a, a surgery you and I do a lot and, and it's very established safe surgery. So 
I think setting the expectations is critical, especially in the patients that already have some cognitive decline. And, and we've seen it really help these patients in practice, but just setting the expectations are not going to be a superstar gopher yeah. implant user. Yeah. And, and I, I think that, um, it's much easier to have that discussion beforehand and then, and then afterwards when they're they're they may not be doing, you know, performing the way that other patients are, we, we like, well, remember we talked about this, you know, yeah. and so we're going to do that. And that's a much easier discussion than them expecting to be, you know, like doing everything like, you know, normal. And then they're, they're mad at you, you know, so it, it does help in that regard for sure. Yeah. Jed, what you, what do you, um, what automated machine do you use for the cognitive screening? What's the, the name of the, the, the name, the name of the device that we use is called Cogniview. Cogniview. Okay. That, this is a company that has been around. I mean, so the, the technology has been around for a long time. It was actually some NIH work that created the science behind the testing. And then only in the last couple of years has it been commercialized. And so this is, um, it's like, like I mentioned, it's sort of a kiosk format that the patient sits in self-administered and it's, it's what they call adaptive. And so what that means is the first couple of tests on the Cogniview are learning how the patient is going to respond. So it checks their dexterity and their vision. And if they are not performing well, then the test gets easier. Like when it actually gets to the real cognitive test. And if the test gets, if, if the patient is knocking it out of the park, then the, then the test is harder. So it's like adaptive to meet the needs of the patient. And, th and there've been multiple studies validating this test in multiple ways, you know, from a test retest reliability to comparing it to other validated measures on the market. And so it's, it's kind of a, kind of a big player in the cognitive screening arena. Well, Jed, this has been a great conversation on a, on a hot topic right now with the hearing loss and dementia and cognitive dysfunction. Are there any, uh, last, um, words or advice or comments you have? No, I, I appreciate you, Walter, having me. I would just say that I, th I think ENT is a great specialty and it's a great field. And I think that as we continue to kind of adapt and evolve, that we can kind of maintain the, the role that we played for, you know, years and years of being kind of leaders in our spaces. And I think we need to continue that. So thank you for having me on today. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks. It's been very informative. I've learned a lot. Thanks, Walter. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan.